Hello and welcome to the Room of Lives, fellows. I am very excited today. This is going to be a great series of episodes. Today we will meet Ian Benewis. He flew a Black Hawk helicopter in Operation Just Cause in Panama. This was the American invasion of Panama that happened in 1989 during the administration of George Bush Sr. It was the largest special force operation in the history of American wars and part of the war on drugs. Here's an interesting Wikipedia excerpt about this war. Operation plans directed against Panama evolved from plans designed to defend the Panama Canal. They became more aggressive as the situation between the two nations deteriorated. Eventually, these plans became Operation Blue Spoon, which was then, in order to sustain the perceived legitimacy of the invasion throughout the operation, renamed by the Pentagon to Operation Just Cause. General Colin Powell said that he liked the name because even our severest critics would have to utter just cause while denouncing us. Anyway, after the war, Ian started to work for the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer and witnessed firsthand the meteoric rise of opioids and SSRI-based medication that would be prescribed to veterans with anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. In the years since, Ian has been healing himself and other veterans of trauma using plant-based medicines and psychedelics known to Latin American traditions substances that would be vigorously denounced by the authorities of both the war on drugs as well as the pharmaceutical industry. In 2016, Ian took six veterans with PTSD to Peru for a 10-day shaman-guided ritual using plant-based medicines, including the intense psychedelic ayahuasca. He later took some of them to Mexico for treatment with the psychedelics ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT. These journeys were filmed and released as the documentary Soldiers of the Vine. It's a great one-hour documentary that you can watch freely on YouTube. So today, Ian will be talking about his experiences of war, the pharmaceutical industry, using natural psychedelics and practices to heal trauma, and the insights into the nature of life and reality that the psychedelics have afforded him. Before we go directly into the recordings, it's helpful to provide a background and chronology of how these conversations came to be. Okay, so one obvious question here is, how did I meet Ian? I've mentioned in the past that I've been running a weekly series of talks by anyone, for anyone, on any topic at the University of Texas at Austin called the Molotov Seminar. In February of 2018, I organized a talk by Lynn Ulbricht, the mother of Ross Ulbricht, a physics graduate from Austin who founded the dark web market Silk Road. It's an underground website where people could trade over the anonymous Tor network using cryptocurrency. Frequently, the commodity being traded was illegal mind-altering drugs. Ross was arrested and now faces a sentence of double life plus 40 years in a maximum security prison. So... When Lynn was giving her talk, it was attended by several members of the UT Austin chapter of the Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or SSDP. One of them came up to me afterwards and said that they would be interested in hosting events jointly with me. They eventually connected me to Ian Benewis, whose profile I found to be very interesting. I arranged for him to give a Maltov seminar. 
in which he gave a well-rounded description of his background, his experience of war and the pharma industry, and his work of healing using natural psychedelics. He took a lot of questions from the folks in attendance, so it was a very lively discussion. A few weeks later, he and I sat down on my couch for my podcast, and I asked him a bunch of questions that had not been covered in the Molotov seminar, but were a lot of personal interest to me, particularly the ones having to do with insights into the nature of life and reality that these psychedelics have given us. So, this conversation is going to be in three parts. The first is going to be the Molotov seminar that Ian gave and that he recorded himself using his phone. So the audio quality is not as good as the other recordings, but it's still pretty good. And I feel so glad now that he recorded that because it was a good discussion and provides a great background so that I didn't have to repeat that material for my podcast. The second and third parts are going to be the two halves of our one-on-one podcast conversation. The first of these focuses on war, trauma, and medication. The second is focused on healing using plant medicines and practices and insights into life and the nature of reality that are afforded by these psychedelics. So this first part is Ian's Molotov seminar, which I titled Healing War Trauma with Natural Psychedelics. I hope you enjoy these conversations, and if you do, consider donating Ether to abhranil.eth, that's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. Thank you guys. My name is Ian Benwies, and uh, I want to keep this talk really as interactive as possible. I want to share with you, obviously, like my background story to put all the specific things in context. But uh, I'm really not interested in you know hearing myself talk about shit. And uh, I'm going to use the approach that I've been learning in ayahuasca, which uh, you know you're in ceremony with other people over like maybe a three-day weekend and uh, when you're talking the next day about your experiences that you're sharing with the group a couple minutes at a time and it could be up to 40 people you obviously been working on your stuff while you're under the medicine and you've been thinking about it since then but then when it comes time for you to talk you're really just supposed to not think about what you're saying and just open up and speak from the heart and obviously like a DJ you've thought about the things that you want to talk about and you've put together and you created right but you're not supposed to be like okay first I'm going to cover because then it's going to take you out of the you know out of the moment so uh I want to keep it like that as much as possible so I think most of you have like like read obviously the little background on the description of this event and uh so the the intersection really of these plant medicines and veterans and then how that kind of fits into the whole you know, war machine, drug war, uh, pharmaceutical crisis we're having right now. So, uh, come on in, man. Just, just in time. Um, so, my father's actually a university professor. Uh, I grew up mainly in Hawaii. We moved out there in the early 70s. And um, growing up in Hawaii in the 70s was actually a really awesome place. You could really play outside as a kid. Back when we were kids, you, you know, you left during the day and your mom 
you know, knew that you'd come home when it got dark. <laughs> and she didn't worry about where you were or your parents didn't. And uh, cannabis there was really integrated into culture when I grew up there in the 70s. And it was effectively decriminalized. And everybody grew it. And it was part of the culture. It was an island culture. And I remember, you know, my next-door neighbors who were this uh, Japanese couple across the street in their 60s, when we threw a ball or, you know, soccer ball or football got in their yard and we went back in there and they had, you know, two pot plants in their backyard. And I was just like, man, everybody smokes pot. This is like, would have been, you know, late 70s or something. And uh, so I uh, wanted to get the best education I could for the money, which was end up going to West Point to really get a good education and, you know, be able to serve my country and, uh Develop some, some leadership skills and some discipline skills and uh, went into the Army where I went to flight school and I was a, became a Black Hawk pilot, right? There's the Apache, which is, you know, a gunship, right, that shoots rockets and uh, hellfires and things like that. And then there's a Black Hawk that you can put people in or equipment or you can put something underneath it like an artillery piece. And uh, so I... Graduated from flight school in 1987, was stationed in Fort Ord, California, which is now Cal State Monterey, and uh, just basically south of the Bay Area. And within a couple months of being at Fort Ord, we got deployed down to Panama in what eventually became, this was in 87, up in 89, the end of 89, Operation Just Cause. So, you know, we're, this is like, the drug war that we're fighting all in Central and South America. And uh, so we were down there to eventually just take over, uh, Nor to do a regime change on Noriega, Manuel Noriega, who was a U.S. ally, a super good U.S. ally, but eventually kind of went rogue on his own drug empire in Panama, right? So we had to, uh, you know, reel, reel him in and... Uh, so that was my experience of that, you know, deployment. It's not like Afghanistan, right, or Iraq, you know. Uh, the, the fighting that went on there, it was much more of a low-intensity drug war, but it was also uh, the actual Operation Just Cause was a chance to use all this special forces equipment, all these Navy SEALs and all these uh, stealth fighters. and So it was the biggest special forces operation in history. So it was like all the cool military stuff, you know, that they wanted to test out. And uh, so I got out of the military, uh, moved to Texas, got a job working for Pfizer. This was the peak of the, this was in 1990. This was the peak of the uh, pharmaceutical industry. And this is just when the SSRIs, uh, like Prozac being the first one, and the uh, synthetic opioids or opiates or whatever you like, like Vicodin, were just really being launched. And there was a lot of promise. And I remember, like, these opiates are not going to addict people, you know. And uh, they're safer than the other ones, right? They're more powerful, more effective, and less addictive. And it's like, that's, that's happened for every single thing. I mean, heroin was sold as a, uh, you know, is basically a way to deal with being addicted to opium. That's how it was marketed. So you just, you just have a continuation of that. Uh, but in any case, so I, I did see some of the goods that some of the, the drugs did. We, like, we sold these heart medications and blood pressure medications. 
but uh, hey there. You saw a lot how much uh, hype and possibility that they put on these, these uh, SSRIs. And so uh, from there I went to law school and uh, basically in law school, I, uh, like I got started on my spiritual path. Let's see. To, I went to Panama. I uh, almost drowned body surfing off Santa Cruz. This uh, ex-military guy who was, had mental health issues robbed my house while I wasn't there, burned it down. When I got mental health treatment, fit enough to stand trial, and then he killed himself the night before he was supposed to uh, come and be in that trial. So, And then I moved to Texas and my first wife left me. So I was like, oh, wow, the universe is trying to get my attention. <laughs> and so that was like for me the beginning of my spiritual path, which uh, as it turned out for myself was like, you know, immersing myself in the, in the uh, you know, writings and scriptures of these traditions that I was going to look at the textbooks, you know, myself, and at the same time, these uh, plant medicines. And, uh, you know, the, in Hawaii, the kind of that matrix of being there in nature certainly s supported that with the cannabis. And then, you know, like mushrooms grew all around my high school, like in the cow patties where the, where the cows were. And so uh, I started putting those two things together for myself. And uh, I was basically starting to heal myself from traumas that I didn't realize I had. I didn't realize there was such a thing called trauma. I didn't realize that uh, bad things happened to anyone. Other, you know, I only thought bad things happened to other people. And so I um, started working on myself, fixing myself so I could, and I got remarried, uh, be a good husband and, and raise a family. But I didn't understand trauma or any of that kind of stuff so I just but I still dove into that and that's uh you know I've MDMA and LSD and mescaline and mushrooms and ayahuasca and DMT and 5-MeO DMT and this was the age of the internet coming online right early 90s yeah and uh the psychonautic revolution where if you had an internet connection <laughs> and you had a credit card you could Surf the internet, right? Find information on things and potentially buy them and have them sent to your house and then be able to confer with other people online as to what everybody was doing. But I did a ton of work back then and uh, even got to sit with the ayahuasca shaman here in Austin, like back in maybe around 98. It was like the first uh, guy to come up from Peru, you know, and come, come to the U.S. and do that kind of stuff. Uh, and so then I... Uh, I graduated from law school, focused on IP, did the whole corporate world thing for a long time in big companies and startups, a lot of high-tech startups. And uh, But then about four years ago, I, I met veterans. And I went to this normal conference on veterans, the first one in Texas. And it's designed to start getting veterans together and this whole political issue, right, of getting Canada's freedom to help veterans. And anyway, I met these veterans telling their stories, which... None of them were a surprise to me, the stories themselves, PTSD and getting blown up with IEDs and TBI, traumatic brain injury, and coming back and being on the medications and drinking and suicide and suicidal ideation. I mean, I, I knew about those things, but hearing their stories, I was like crying and I was like, 
purging while I'm hearing their stories, you know? And I was like, what's, what's going on here? And I realized, wow, I have a lot of work to do still here. I've, this is my second round of, of healing. And I knew about these medicines, and so it was a totally natural thing for me to go right back uh, into them and continue to do my work. And in that interim time between, you know, when I first started with the medicines and raising a family, I had a daily spiritual practice, which I maintained the whole time, you know, and uh, learned to do meditation and doing yoga now for, you know, over like eight years or something. And so I had this excellent reintegration machine and container and platform to be able to do a lot of work uh, in a shorter amount of time at an old at an older age, you know, in my life, and then basically, like, uh, did ayahuasca like fifty four times in the past three years, which is uh, which is a lot. But uh, you know, that's in about the mid forties of that. That's when I like accepted myself. I processed uh, sexual tra- sexual traumas from like second and third grade, and uh, my sister dying when I was four months old, and. You know, everything, all of it. So that's 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 how long it took. So in that intersection of me doing my personal work, uh, and of course more and more interest coming out about this in society, I started then to intersect with veterans again. And uh, after that initial meeting, and of course I knew like, well, I got to continue to work on myself. These plant medicines can help do that. We, you know, I, I'm I'm a veteran, and I had never really, I hadn't been integrated with other veterans, and so. Those two things just came together, and I started basically connecting with other veterans who were trying to do the same thing. And so started to do that with other veterans and realized as that process went on that uh, veterans were going to be the ones ultimately to uh, be the avatars or the exemplars of how to end the drug war and show society, the planet, culture that uh, you can't solve your political problems anymore uh, using the military, like, you know, con- fighting conventional uh, wars. It doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. So uh, now I'm involved with, gosh, what do I do? I, <laughs> I support taking lots of people to go do these medicines, ayahuasca and the 5-MeO-DMT and the toad. Uh, done that in uh, Mexico and... Uh, in, uh, in Peru and then other places. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's a lot about me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so let's start with some questions right there because I could start talking about doing these medicines and experiences and whatever, but, you know. Okay. Um, then, I'll, then I'll get you next. Right okay. Now. If you had to have some statistics on how many people have you taken to either Mexico or here or here to, to do these medicines and how many, many of them have recovered or are or, or on path to recovery? Uh, I've been in this, taking people and been involved with healing stuff with, I don't know, maybe, maybe getting near a hundred people over the past couple of years. And, uh, You know, it's all over the place because ultimately the highest correlator to acquiring PTSD in war 
is childhood trauma. Think of it like an infectious disease, something that you get exposed to and you acquire. If you have a good childhood and you go there and you do this stuff and you come back and you have a good support system, you have a better chance of reintegrating versus someone who's already messed up. So you have this uh, childhood trauma really problem underneath. And so uh, these things aren't any kind of silver bullets. I'm going to say is, I don't, you know, the, the, the rates are much better than any of the conventional means. And I think that's really the, the ultimate measure. They're, they're sustainable. They're, they, you don't have to give them for forever. You know, they're not like maintenance drugs. So, uh, but I'm just saying, I know, I know friends that are just, they're still deep in doing their work. So really the, uh, it remains to be seen <laughs> if they can, uh, if they can pull it out. But the, the people that I'm working with that uh, are like, you know, close to me and connected to me are, are doing incredible and doing, doing awesome. I just don't want to though, you know, paint some kind of like uh, unrealistic picture but, so and sorry, sorry so you had a question um, so what is well, you don't just do the drugs you offer stuff I guess that's not really a question that's okay go for it when you go and do the, like, ayahuasca, yeah. you said there was a shaman, so he facilitates in some way? Yes. So it's in a ceremonial space. Let's pretend this room is an ayahuasca ceremony. There's some sort of altar, which is just to, you know, put it in a sacred space and have, it, have an orientation. And that person is then using music to be the, like, mandala or metronome or, you know, like, focus point for the sort of meditation group meditation everyone's doing while they're on the medicine and the medicine's a psychic magnifier. So if you have things in your unconscious that need to be addressed, it <laughs> directs the focus of that medicine on those things. And so uh, you have music and then you have periods of, periods of silence. So the music sometimes helps to give it focus and then there's other times where it's more quiet meditative and the whole medicine itself is the whole time coming in waves and there's moments where you like have moments of complete lucidity and you're totally sober and then you know seconds later you're like oh my god I'm never going to make it I'm you know, tripping balls so hard and I can't and I don't know you know what's what and so uh, but the the shaman or facilitator practitioner is holding the energetic space for the room right keeping just the, however you want to think about it, you know, distractions, negative energy, you know, at bay and keeping the integrity of the energetic uh, room together and then, uh, you know, supporting people individually if they need it or giving people individual attention or analysis, you know, depending on their uh, particular approach. And in, in uh, Peru and Carlos and his work and his brothers, uh, you come to them and they, and he sings you. Like in the case we went down there, we had the three brothers. It was super special. We had, you know, you figure there's 10,000 Shipibo that are uh, existing. Half of those are practicing. 10% of the shamans that are legit. That's the number that everybody agrees upon in all of, you know, Central and South America. So it's like 500 people. And we had three brothers that were like third generation to, to, you know, mom and grandmother before. And so uh, you would go up and uh, one of those guys would sing you a song. And that song is like, you know, it's a healing song. It's uh, that person's looking at your energy and, uh, you know, <laughs> helping to direct the medicine inside you and support your uh, 
work with it. And yeah, so basically that person is giving you some specialized attention. Uh, but uh, yeah, so you're just, you're just sitting there on your mat for six to eight hours while the music goes in and out and you ride the waves of the experience. So. Uh, I was just wondering like how you were feeling and what led you to have these like first spiritual experiences, you said? First, first spiritual experiences, what? Uh, I guess you said that you had that first phase. And then you oh, like, yeah, what, what, what prompted me to, yeah. well, it was these life or death things. I almost drowned and, you know, my house burned down and it was just weird circumstances. The guy burned it down was just, you know, had, had mental health issues and my wife left me. So I, that was like, what a spiritual crisis, spiritual emergency. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? And that, and, you know, why... Why plants, uh, you know, that part is, if that's maybe your question, I'm not sure other than I can say, like I was alluding to that growing up in Hawaii and that culture where you are in nature, you know, and you, you seem connected to it, that, that seemed like a natural approach. Uh, but it wasn't something like where, you know, something popped out of the sky and said, dude, you should do, you know, this. And I was like, oh, that's the answer. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers it or not, yeah, but... Yeah. How would so. you compare ayahuasca to the other medications, the medicines you've done for people that have an experience? Is it the actual experience? Um, so, it's uh, these medicines are a mirror, just like mindfulness techniques. Think about yoga or meditation or flotation tanks or light therapy or anything. They're tools to allow f for self introspection. And of course, not just at your higher level mental functions, but all of your subconscious and stuff where all the really important deep stuff is going on. And it just allows you, and it, I mean, it allows you and it also drives you. And this is crazy kind of dance with it where you can see those things, but your ego's down regulated, but not off. And your judgment is, you know, kind of turned off it's just down regulating law through ego and then your fear response is turned off and then you know, they're, they're mapping the stuff scientifically right in the brain the amygdala and all. but so you can then see you can go back and revisit something in your life that was a uh, experience that has it's traumatic it's still stored in you and have some kind of uh, different greater perspective on it that you can then recontextualize it and go oh okay now that i see that that I can accept that more. That makes more sense. So basically, a psychic magnifier that's going to look in you, and you already know what it's looking for because the things that you're hiding, and help bring that psychic material out in a way that you can evaluate it and literally reintegrate it back into you. It's really got to dismember yourself, <laughs> right, before you can remember yourself, before you can shamanically remember yourself. And that whole idea and those concept right is that you take your you you die you die a certain death and you cut yourself up and then you rebuild all the parts in the nice and new and then you put it all back together in your new body but that's a great still metaphor for you can look at that from the psychological aspect of you know going through your your subconscious stuff and processing it and integrating it back into you but as far as experience you know the the culture is kind of programmed with the terence mckenna you know self-transforming machine elves and the, you know, I was ready for the alien vistas and the, you know, alien Disneyland. And I was like, wow, where's all the, the visual stuff when I first took it? And it was like super heart centered. And I was taking out the Jedi holocrons for each person in my life for like a half hour, an hour and just sitting there and be like, wow. And just like 
looking back at all how, what that person means in my life and there was you know, no visuals. And I think the more you do it, there's less visuals. Visuals are the sort of uh, like an attractor and sort of uh, letting you know that the medicine's there and working, but ultimately they, you don't need to have any visuals at all for the experience. So it's very personalized, it's very custom. Somehow the medicine, while you're in a group of people, if people know what they're doing and all that, you know, where every person where they're at in their own life and all these people all together somehow can come together and uh, everyone can get what they need at the same time, which is why it's done and recommended to be done, you know, in, in group settings with some with a qualified practitioner because uh, doing things like that off on your own, if you're not, uh, if you don't have the skills or the practice, you can get yourself into some tough spots. Does that, does that answer your question enough? Or? <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess I was also curious how you feel like ayahuasca differs from all the medicines you've done in terms of like just the way it affects people or the perspective you get. Well, like maybe what would be some other medicines that you were wanting to compare it to? Like maybe mushrooms or MDMA. Sure, sure. So, right, DMT is schedule one drug made by your pineal gland, made by your lungs as well. And uh, you basically... Uh, you have DMT and then you have a hydroxyl group on it that makes psilocin, which is the active ingredient, right? In magic mushrooms, when you take off the phosphoryl group and then, you know, off the psilocybin. And so these things are all very similar. These things are all very close to the, you know, serotonin and other uh, neurotransmitters that are already in your brain. So ayahuasca is unique because the DMT normally gets deactivated in your gut by monoamine oxidase, an enzyme. The ayahuasca vine, the MAOI in there blocks that. And so uh, you have effects from the MAOI separate from its orally activating the DMT that's different than other medicines. So if you took mushrooms, you're getting like a, a, a variant on that DMT and it does certain things. And then when you take ayahuasca, you're getting the DMT and you're getting these beta carbolines, which, you know, a lot of people will describe D uh, ayahuasca like, you know, Getting, getting your uh, hard drive defragged or getting, you know, getting scrubbed at the atomic or molecular or cellular level, concepts like that. So uh, ultimately, I mean, there's no difference. You know what I mean? There's, it, it, uh, at the deepest level, there's no difference between mushrooms or DMT or 5-MeO-DMT if you go far enough, you know. So uh, I, I've written some stuff that I talk about the difference in subtleties, but that's probably way, you know, <laughs> way, way too uh, deep. For, for, for this here, uh, they just, you know, fit. They have different affinities, right, for these different receptor and sub-receptor types in the brain, 5-HT1A and 2 and 2C and all these. And so uh, they all have these subtle differences, but ultimately they're psychic magnifiers that are mirrors that help people to see inside themselves and use whatever they experience as the metaphor or vision or piece of art that they can take back from the experience and go, oh, when I was had all these thoughts, I remember seeing this thing, right? And that thing, now I can go back and think about it later. That vision I had is a way to think back on the problem I was solving or the, you know, understanding that I got. So, so you said that DMT is these things unlike conventional uh, medications aren't something you need a prescription for that just lasts Definitely. Well, that you you wouldn't have to uh, you know take them like as a maintenance drug. Where are these other? Yeah, yeah. So that was the question. You also said you've taken uh, ayahuasca, I 
think like 50 times in the last few years. So do you get something different out of each experience or is it just kind of like, I don't know, charging up again? or what Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I haven't gotten to a point where I'm like, yeah, I definitely need to stop. And so I've also, number one, that there's, there's never an end to the layers of the onion. That's really the truth. Uh, there are definitely people that I've met that are just chasing the medicines and they're like shaking the snow globe, but they don't wait long enough for the snow to settle back down before they shake it again. And so they're just in complete festival mode all the time, just fucking shaking the snow globe and chasing the next adventure, never, never doing that. So, uh, you know, for me, like I said, it took into about the forties of ceremonies before I fully accepted myself. And I said, I'm happy for every single thing that happened to me and not like with any kind of holding out or regrets or trading or rationality, just like, yes, all those things that I otherwise might've thought of bad. Now I accept the greater logic, the greater love, you know, for those things happening. And, uh, now I've spent more time going to either deeper levels or let's say after sexual trauma. Now you're like, okay, now that you're, that you've, you've accepted that integrated, you still have to figure out what that means, what that means at, at this point. And so I'm also, you know, taking other people with me as well. Right. So I'm now in a mode more where it's like, uh, going to AA or something also, and there's, I'm still doing there able to do my work and I'm not wasting my time or twiddling my fingers, but supporting other people, whether they be veterans or not, you know, going and doing their work. So it's really, uh, like I said, totally personal. I met this woman, she's done it a hundred times and it's like, you know, uh, I'm not trying to judge her. Right. But if I was, if, some, if, if someone's asking me like, yeah, well, I don't, doesn't seem like it's helping her a lot. And there might be someone who's done it three times and that's all they ever need, <laughs> you know? So. Yeah. Is there any like a uh, cue or anything? Uh, no, no, it's going to get, I'll just point out him. Go ahead. Oh, me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is there any cue that causes you to, you know, take another dose? There's any what? Is, is cue. There any cue? Like something like you feel. Oh, like you're in ceremony and you're going to take more? Is that? Oh, no, no. Like, oh, like do it like, do it again? Like when you start a, a ceremony, it's like there's a reason you're saying, okay, I'm going to start the ceremony. Uh, so, well, you're, like, so, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so your decision to take another, to go back yeah. and do it again, like you, you, are, do you think to yourself, oh, I'm, I need another one now because I've processed well, in this, like, you know, three years, it's just been continuous where I never thought, oh, uh, I don't need to go do this again. I'm, you know, uh, let's see. Yeah, I don't know that there's I don't know that there's any uh, cue or anything. I just I basically set out to do this work on myself and to go all the way and to finish. So that, that <laughs> so you know, and that's uh, yeah, that's very that's like months. You know what I'm saying? Where I, I'm, I'm and, and and there's no finishing. So it's just more that I've accepted myself and now trying to figure out what that means as far as uh, who I am. But uh, I'm, like I said, I'm still taking other people to go do it. So, yeah, I don't know. Oh, so back there, yeah. So um, drug use is kind of a big part of Western culture as well, American culture, but it's not really ritualized in the same way you're describing, like there's just these complex code rituals around the, around the procedure. I'm, I'm curious about 
what, based on your experience, what role does it play in the in the cultures in which it's done like that? What's the what is it really? Seems like it's more of a normal sort of progression that somebody would find themselves in. How does how does that work? What, sure. Well, number one, right, this is, in tribal societies, what we did. We got together once a week around the fire, and we sang songs, and we drank whatever our traditional medicine was, whatever kind of medicine it was, and worked out our stuff. And then everybody went back to their hammocks and their huts or whatever, and, you know, uh, went back to business. And so, yeah, that, that sort of ceremony aspect has been lost right into Western culture with these medicines and so many other things, right? There's no, you know, we don't have rites of passage. We, so we've lost not just around the medicine, but all these different ceremonial things. And what the container does is very important because it, it, it creates a safe place for people to do this work. And you can't go deep if you're worried for your safety when you're taking these. And, you know, this is a big challenge with the ayahuasca tourism. It's going on in, uh, you know, Peru especially, where people are going down there and getting, you know, taken advantage of. And uh, there's just people being thrown together, people that shouldn't shouldn't be there. And so uh, having the, the safe container, having the ritual just kind of focuses on the importance of what the thing you're trying to do there, bringing everyone together in a common exercise of, of like of group healing. And it, yeah, so it accelerates the process. It, it creates a deeper floor of safety and vulnerability where people can express more and, and like I said, be safer. So, uh, and, and it, and it provides a kind of, uh, closure too for it's like okay now now we're done with ceremony and you got to go back and <laughs> into life and and, and and reintegrate it so yeah just uh really protects the work increases the depth and power of it and uh yeah it just makes it a lot safer so Can I just have one? yeah yeah please man. One In the tribal society, every, everybody, including everybody, including kids, man, in these societies, you know, yeah, kids, you know, they get them early, and here's a little taste of peyote, here's a little taste of ayahuasca, and it's just that it's something that's integrated, you know, and there are cultures that they don't feel like they've stepped outside of the circle of nature, where we kind of, you know, can have that in the West, right, where we're, <laughs> see ourselves as something separate from that, and I remember doing DMT, I mean, ayahuasca, like three years ago, and it was just coming on so strong. I hadn't done it in 18 years, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm just going to get my ass kicked. And then I was like, this is nature. This is DMT. This isn't something outside. This isn't alien. This is already in me. So what is it that I'm trying to fight against? Where do I draw the line between nature's DMT and my DMT? It's like it's, it's ridiculous. There's no, there's no boundary. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, and, I, and I'm a... a self-confessed, professed uh, psychonaut, you know, and I totally believe in, you know, free will and personal freedom and personal responsibility. And so I'm not one of those people that believes that you only have to do that in a, you know what I'm saying, with a shaman in a ceremony, but uh, that's just like a tried and true way. And it, it, that doesn't prevent anyone here from using those same techniques to, as well. And that's, you know, obviously happening. So, yeah. Can I add? Sure, question about this ceremonial aspect. So I, I the, 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 I'm totally skeptical about the 
carbon and sterile ammonia aspect and I went to Peru and did this uh, for 10 days and at first I was like what this is just uh, like these are like I think intentions and stuff like that but uh, to 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 me now looking back at it it's clear that how uh, because the the drug is an amplifier of your subconscious so having that space there is had an intention and uh, that sort of prepares those emotions to, 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 to rise up and be amplified and then as he was mentioning they're not talking uh, the shamans during the ceremony are not, are not uh, giving any specific instructions they, they are they, they're just singing songs or even like uh, coming close to you and just doing and uh, I was like, okay, what's this? But now it seems like the nines don't have um, like memories and not not stored in uh, like a chronological order, right? There are triggers that can trigger different things, and then we make them pop up. And these songs and the smell of like they'll have some smell, uh, they a smoke, they, they'll have their smoke on you, they'll be going and all these <coughs> just like triggered different memories that might be stored deep down that they don't even remember them and bring them up. And for me, each song started a new episode of <laughs> and then as the song ended, that episode ended and then again different songs started and the beginning episode started and I was like man I would have never thought all this whoop like whoop stuff yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah yeah what he said <laughs> yeah so sure um, I like the idea of talking about how you prep for ceremony you had brought up the prepping for ceremony Sure. Well, it's really understanding that they have a uh, support network of people that they can talk to after the process that have experience with the medicine who can first obviously tell them, no, you're not nuts. It's totally normal to be experiencing all these things and that they can, you know, it can be professional. It can be friendship, you know, but just some form of being able to have someone else that they can get counsel with that they can share and uh, so uh, and then really it's the, you know, does this person have this, the spiritual, the, you know, emotional, the physiological integrity to be able to take the medicine and then do the work? Because everybody says they want to take the red pill, but then they take the red pill and they're like, man, this really sucks. Uh, I didn't want this much truth in reality and I want to go back to eating the fake steak, even though I know it's fake. And so that's, you know, so you, you really... You know, you're not trying to overhype the experience part of it as much as, listen, this is, whatever it's going to happen to you, it's going to be this amplifier, it's going to magnify these things, and you're going to get understanding, but it's going to be then to do work from that. Now that you've learned that, you, what are you going to do with that? And so if you're not 
prepared to do the work. So I think that, uh, you know, understanding, hey, what kind of, uh, you know, spiritual, meditative, mindfulness, whatever words you want to use, practice do you have to have some just time to sit there when you're not being distracted by other people or work or electronics or anything, you know, to uh, meditate, reflect, <laughs> process that stuff. And, uh, and then I think, you know, uh, it is important for people to have some sport, sort of spiritual philosophy, outlook, understanding, whatever. It's not anybody believing anything. It's just like, but you have to have some sort of outlook because if you just go in and get yourself totally ripped up and opened up here, you'll just freaking believe anything. And then there's people that are like that and they just get totally opened up and they believe everything. And, you know, that... That's uh, just as bad as believing nothing, right? So having some sort of, you know, outlook that you can put these <laughs> bigger experiences, bigger cosmic downloads uh, into. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the really having the, you know, what, what, I, what I do is ask people, it's really easy. I just say, what's the reason that you're called to the medicine? <laughs> And usually they just, you know, volunteer all the key stuff, which as you can see, is like, are, are they chasing it? Are they trying to avoid something? Do they really? And then it's usually, most of the time, it's like, I've got these serious freaking problems, serious demons. <laughs> They're, I'm going to die if I don't solve them and I need help doing them. And yeah, but uh, just having the, the support network, having people you can, you know, just understand what you've done. Not just, in other words, the person who can talk to you, but someone who can has the intersection of talk to you and experience of these medicines. And then the, you know, spiritual uh, practice, discipline, the ability to have time away from other people, the ability to control your, your diet and the thing, the, the, your whole, everything that you eat. You know, if you're in an environment where you're surrounded by a lot of distractions and from that it's going to be more challenging as well so yeah so um is one of the side effects of like ayahuasca when you take it like some people will feel extremely nauseous or very ill and that it would take some like either some preparation or a low dose for them to well like um to get like for their bodies to accept this medicine. The main reason for if people feel ill or bad on ayahuasca would be that they haven't uh, followed the dietary restrictions on the way in, or another way of saying they just have really poor, make really poor lifestyle choices and they eat crap. You know, if you eat crap and you don't clean yourself up before you do ayahuasca. The medicine will kick your ass and it will not be fun and it will suck because the medicine will tell you what you already knew, know is that eating, you know, a bunch of soda and processed foods and, <laughs> you know, all the, all the, the bad stuff that we eat is not, is not good for you. So there, something totally separate is the, is purging, you know what I mean? And yeah. kind of like the visions with ayahuasca, vomiting as it's more looked at right is this thing that's seen with ayahuasca. It's, just ignore that. Basically, when you take ayahuasca, you you expose the subconscious material and you purge, which is you can purge by pooping, peeing, sweating, laughing, crying, singing, throat, ejecting stuff out of your stomach. But it's not like vomiting from like, you know, 
if you had the flu or you had, you got sick drinking or something, it's energetic expulsion of that stuff in there. So you're both energetically letting go and your body's physically letting go. And, you know, you get that sort of spirit and matter experience married together and it just super intensifies it. And just kind of like when you sneeze or other body functions where it takes over your whole body, when you're purging, you can't do or think about anything else. And so it's super, you know, um, has super psychological power when you do that. You really, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, oh my God, I want to let go of this shit. And you're like, Bleh! you're literally letting go. And if you, you can't be telling your body anymore that you're letting go. So ayahuasca doesn't uh, make you ill at all. Uh, in, in and of itself, and if you do purge, uh, you might feel nauseous on the part of leading up to the purge, but uh, I can say from repeated experiences, you feel like a million bucks when you purge, because <laughs> you're literally letting go, so you don't feel after, it's like, you know, you're, like you, you, you're sick in your stomach, and then you're like, oh, this really sucks now, you're like, oh my god, I survived that, oh wow, I feel great now, <laughs> so... Is that, yeah. does that kind of answer it? Or, or? Yeah, and also, I would, like, I would gain, is it, for people who have taken that, is it, have there been, like, um, have there been, like, in, improvements in, like, addiction to certain drugs, such as, like, cocaine or alcohol and stuff like that? Well, I began really amazing. I've taken it myself. I volunteered to be, like, a vet guinea pig right two weeks before I went to a week before I went to Peru, I did Ibogaine in the Toad. And then two weeks before that, I did three days of ayahuasca. And the Ibogaine uh, crossroads, the place that I went, you know, and, and paid for all my stuff. And I did brain scans before and after. Uh, they had like 75, as high as 75% success rates for meth and coke and uh, heroin and other opiates uh, at about a year out with Ibogaine. And, of course, I mean, that's just incredible. Nothing, nothing else can touch that. And uh, the Ibogaine, it works on trauma, it works on traumatic brain injury, and it works on addiction. And of course, addiction is the thing that people see the, you know, the, the biggest sort of focused on, focus on. Uh, and what it does is it, yeah, it like gives you like this biochemical reset where you come out and you don't have the cravings part because you can go and do the, see why it is you had, see the trauma, Accept it, understand it, whatever, forgive yourself. And then, then you've, you're addressing the psychological reason why you were self-medicating with whatever these drugs were, right? You don't need them anymore, but you still have your brain hardwired for that addiction, right? And the Ibogaine just like, you know, unplugs all this stuff. The best way I can describe the Ibogaine is that uh, it's like the, you know, operator that you have there that's making all the connections. It's all unplugged, so... You're sitting there after Ibogaine, you have some kind of trigger that would otherwise you'd run some program, right? You're like, oh, well, normally I'd run this program. Well, I don't have to run that program. I can run that program. I can run a different program. I can edit that program. I can add subroutines. You know what I mean? You can just you start realizing because so much of our behavior is, you know, on autopilot, right, where we just response and, and trigger. And so it really unhooks all that and then gives you that chance not only so you've got the biochemical reset, You've understood more about your life story stuff around the trauma, and now you're like, oh, okay, cool. What do I wanna? What do I wanna do? So, uh, and it for me, uh, I didn't have addictions, but it, it'll work in the level of compulsions, you know, <laughs> obsessions, whatever. And uh, trauma, especially early childhood trauma, preverbal trauma, 
you blame yourself because you don't have the logic developed over on this side to make any kind of rational sense of it. And so, yeah, I began through these brain scans, showed I had excess electrical activity across my entire left frontal lobe, across all frequencies. I was overclocking my chip, and it was running hotter. And then so I could, it, I could still process, but sometimes it would just, you know, uh, not work. And the way they, like, explain when you look at those brain scans, they say uh, that uh, my ability to have, like, flexibility of thought was more limited. Not like I could process one thing and do that, but I couldn't easily switch around. And so uh, after the Ibogaine, uh, I got a better balancing of my hemispheres, and it actually, they've shown that it uh, helps to develop the connections through the corpus callosum, right, which we know in women are, by default, more more connected than men. And so, yeah, I got all this personal healing where you go from like maybe the hardware science of overclocking my chip to, a, a, you know, <laughs> a more reasonable speed was that uh, I could have more flexibility of thought. And uh, my mom has, uh, you know, had mania her whole life and definitely I got, you know, got some of the genetics from that. It kind of brought down some of the, I didn't really have any kind of, it's not like bipolar, right, in the, in the depressive part, but just it just kind of brought some mania a little bit uh, more more in check. So, and that, the fact that that medicine is not used with the opiate crisis is just, it's just horrible. It's, un- it's unbelievable. There's only six countries in the world where it's illegal. We're one of them, but if you can, you can drive down to Mexico or go 12 miles offshore in international waters. So, who, yeah, who, yeah. Okay, so this is a question in terms of uh, trauma healing through ayahuasca. Yeah. I have like two questions. I'm curious um, when somebody is like doing a ceremony and it helps of like helping heal trauma after this. I, I know integration is a really important thing, and you're welcome to explain integration yeah. to everybody else because they may not know. But, um, I'm curious, like, after the ceremony, is there more, like, is there confusion about what they just went through, or are they, do they kind of immediately know what they just went through, and they're, like, super open to, like, their traumas that have surfaced? And what do you think that the, uh, what's, like, a general time of where, like, integration starts taking place after ceremonies, or does it take multiple ceremonies for, like, integration to start taking place? The medicine starts to work the time when you choose, like you asked with a cue, whatever, <laughs> to, do the, to do those ceremonies. So it starts to work because you create the intention, and the intention creates the focus in your mind, and so you start to prepare for it. And then, so, uh, so let's say someone did some processing of some trauma in ceremony. Uh, there could be the opportunity after the ceremony's over, like lots of ceremonies you're, you're when you're done then you go and eat because you haven't really been eating during the day while you're doing it and so there could be an opportunity there to talk to the shaman you know and say hey here's what i experienced and can you give me some insight in that or some help around or something uh what normally happens a lot is that uh people sit down with their food and then people just start sharing <laughs> and start using the kind of people being mirrors to each other right of saying yeah wow it's just you know thing and whatever and then that's like it's still a safe space so the 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 reintegration kind of begins in that social environment right after and kind of like a meditation retreat or something you're sort of out there doing that and not doing other stuff and so there's plenty of time where people are sitting around you know and sharing and talking and meditating by themselves so it's happening while you're out there over this three or four or five day weekend already right after ceremony's over and uh 
And I'm sorry, on your second question, it was like, uh, how was it, is Hal, say it again? I was wondering, because um, I know for a lot of people, sometimes integration doesn't immediately happen. It's there's still a lot of processing yeah. of what happened. What's like, what do you think is like the general time when it begins to start happening? Like I said, I think it, it really starts after that cer- first ceremony is over, you start to put together some of those things that you just opened up and then you go back in for another dive and you open, you know what I mean? And so it might be the same thing or it might be something different. And every day is part of the process, either right after for a short amount of time or the next day, the next day you could be spending two to two to three hours in a group of 40 people where people are going around one person at a time, which is an exercise, right? We're not normally <laughs> able to do or, or normally do where that person's like okay my name's Ian and yeah last night here's you know what I you know came what came up for me and you're sharing out the group but also it's like not just to be like hey let me tell you the cool stuff I experienced but let, like let me be very vulnerable right so the reintegration is happening there where I'm like yeah and all the things that I'm told you about or I've shared or that I've shared publicly of course I've shared first in ayahuasca ceremony you know hey there's I just there's all the sexual trauma and you're like telling somebody you're personal experience. So it's, it's happening right there. And then you're getting healing from other people's being there and listening to your story and letting go of it another way by telling it. And then someone else tells the story and you're like, wow, that person's just like me. Or I see that that aspect of what happened to them, how it helps me to see something. So this whole thing of just like mirrors and mirrors and mirrors. And then you're just like, wow, you know, you're getting healing from, I'm not I'm the only person that's messed up or, you know what I mean? The only one's got problems or whatever, you know, whatever your ego's telling you inside your own experience, the validation you get by people coming together and vulnerability and sharing this stuff is super healing and is another form of reintegration. So, and then after that, you know, people will have get togethers, reintegration potlucks, people will be in their smaller groups of people getting together on a regular basis. When we came back from Peru, we're all over the country, right? So we set up, uh, when we went down there, I created this Facebook chat for all the people that were going. It was this crazy, like, logistics, therapy group, all this kind of crazy stuff. And then we came back. We did, like, Skype calls twice a week, Monday and Friday. It started off, and they were, like, four hours long. And this was just six of us, you know, because it was that, it was that uh, crazy. And then we went, and I took those same veterans back to Mexico for, uh, for Ibogaine, a bunch of them in tow. So... Yeah, you gotta, you know, build that process, but it starts happening right away and it can continue on, you know, for days, weeks, months, a lifetime. And that's really the truth is that, you know, if you start on this, you should just be aware that, uh, the only way is through and you, you know, you just don't want to like remodel your house or your life halfway. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, so. Uh, when the first time that that, that that trauma pops up, it might not be as specific as, oh, I was abused in my childhood. It might be something that makes you really afraid and you're like, I don't want to enter this space that is making me afraid. Or it might be like a demon or a thing that that's, uh, that's symbolizes that fear of entering that space. And then so the next day you talk, talk about it and maybe on your own or by this talk, talking and you're like, okay, I, yeah, I can enter that space. And then you do it in the next 
telling me this is only you reached there and you're like, okay, I'm ready to enter the space. And you're, you're then able to make the progress to <coughs> seeing things that, that are driving you, accepting them, being okay with them. And so, yeah, it also, yeah, it all depends on how much, like this, like how much effort you put in and how much acceptance you yeah. I'm comparing it to like MDMA treatment with PTSD. Like MDMA obviously like works through like the amygdala and through the brain, but this sounds like a lot of like self work and like work that you're doing dying. Like you are becoming more aware of the ego and working through that and like using other people to help you as like you said as like mirrors. Yeah. That's, that's just like really cool. I'm thinking about the two types of therapies and yeah, I think you can really get to the same kind of places ultimately with all you know with all these different medicines, more therapeutic sessions, uh, uh, environments, more shamanic environments, you know, whatever. It's just really more that you create a safe space where you can uh, where you can do the work. So yeah. So do you have to leave the country every time you do this? No. <laughs> That's, I really like that question. Yeah, so kind of the earlier question about, you know, the, the legality. All. That's the big challenge, right, is that every single resident in the United States is guilty of possessing at least two Schedule One substances, DMT and 5-MeO. DMT made at least by your pineal gland and 5-MeO by your retina and DMT by your lungs, and I'm sure they'll find it in other places, you know. It's hard to measure because it gets broken down so fast. So uh, today, so, okay, so you have the Schedule and uh, you have, you know, people heard of these uh, Native American churches where they uh, drink, you know, eat peyote, right? The, so uh, you have jurisprudence as well where there's two churches that are from Brazil, two syncretic Christian with a little bit of sometimes African religion in there mixed with the ayahuasca, uh, the Santo Daime and the UDV where... You can't ever say sort of like, this is legal or this is illegal until it's sort of tested, right? You know, I can sit here and be like, hey, everything that I'm doing is protected under the First Amendment. But there may be someone else like who works at the DA, right? You know, who might have a completely uh, different view on it. So those two churches, though, have Supreme Court jurisprudence, right, you know, um, saying that they are allowed, that they're protected under the First Amendment. But yet... Uh, and there's a number of Santo Daime churches in the U.S., number of individual chapters, and same thing with the UDV, but only a couple of them have filed for their DEA exemption, which would allow them to bring medicine uh, across the border, you know, into the U.S., and everybody else is doing it underground. So there's, like, so both, you know, Santo Daime church that's filed for the DEA exemption and got it, and one that hasn't, they're both equally legitimate, right? Uh, but one has chosen to kind of make a public disclosure with the government to get protection to be able to do something, but they're also sort of then saying, hey, here's who we are, here's our address, we have medicine here, you know, and I don't know, do you want to come and inspect our medicine and see how much we have and see what we're doing? This, you know, So there's a trade-off, and because of that, uh, the majority of churches that are practicing that are doing it uh, underground. And, uh, but I, I feel, I'll jump into my you know, political advocacy hat, and I kind of alluded to at the beginning with the presidential election in 2020. Uh, you got the opiate crisis, you got the mental health crisis, suicide crisis. 
Uh, I think the scheduling artifice is the you know Controlled Substance Analog Act, which puts all these drugs, including cannabis, Schedule One and other you know, schedule numbers, is going to come down because if you can pull cannabis off of it, if you can pull psilocybin or MDMA, which are on track right now to be FDA-approved drugs. 2020, 2021, once you get one off, I don't see how you can argue that any others, it's un, it's constitutional for them to be on there. So you could have a scenario where, you know, these uh, drugs are, de- some of them are descheduled in the next in the next couple of years. And then, of course, if once the drug's descheduled, then there's nothing to stop anybody from being like, we're a mushroom church or we're an ayahuasca church or we're whatever, right? Because there's no, you could have state issues, but when the gov- when the federal government drops that, how do you really argue, you know, that there's a state's right for people practicing their religion with something the federal government says is, you know, a, a plant? So, uh, yeah, but where, where do you guys want to kind of go, though, on the sort of re- religious angle? In other words, so... Uh, you could say at one level, everyone using these medicines is totally protected under their First Amendment, but uh, proving that and fighting about it and all that is a completely, you know, uh, diff- different game. But the drug war and the scheduling change is going to be the biggest thing. It's going to just, you know, once they're descheduled or lower scheduled, uh, you'll have people just coming out more in public with the churches around the medicines. Yeah. Several times, I don't think a lot of people in the room know what Toad is. So if you could tell us what is Toad, sure. And also tell us about this Toad conference. Yeah. Yeah, we got my. Fun show. I was wearing my shirt from the from the Toad conference, but uh, so uh, to, the, okay. So you have this uh, molecule called five meo DMT, maybe five meo for short, and it's. You take DMT and you add a five methoxyl group on, you know, a methoxyl group on it in the fifth position. That's the difference between it and DMT. And uh, whereas DMT, this is going to be the easiest way to, to explain it. It'll help to explain kind of the difference between the two. DMT is operating at the at the, at the third eye chakra, which literally is where this is blocked by illusion, and the biggest illusion is that there's separation. And ayahuasca, DMT specifically, helps you to orient and put yourself in the web of creation. In your ancestral line, how do you relate to your family, the people around you, the the whole thing, right? Through sensory information, visual information, auditory information. 5-MeO-DMT, it works at the crown chakra where all all the sensory information is gone. The ego is turned off. So it's non-dual, unity, consciousness, infinity, eternity, <laughs> and it's all love. And so you can literally do that, and it, tur- it turns, with, with ayahuasca, the ego, even though it's like down-regulated, the amygdala is down-regulated, so I'm just like an MBA, it's still there with the, the, the spirit, let's just call it. The higher self and the lower self are in this like dynamic dance, and you're going, with 5-MEO, it's all spirit, and that's your basically your identification is, is, is with the whole thing. So it's a substance that has been snuffed along with DMT containing plants in South America for thousands of years. Ayahuasca was actually a later invention, but in the past, 
you know, 20 or 30 years, this 5-MeO, so you can get 5-MeO DMT out of one animal on the planet. It's in these other plants, but never is like the main substance. There's all these other tryptamine alkaloids in there. But, you know, creator source, whatever, how you want to look at it, decided to put this O-methyltransferase enzyme in this one bufo that's in the Sonoran Desert that lives into part of Arizona and Mexico, where if you squeeze the glands, instead of getting out uh, bufotenine, you get out uh, 5-MeO-DMT. And if you vaporize that, uh, you will uh, potentially merge with the Godhead. So. <laughs> or, or stuff like that. So, that's just a little quick primer. <laughs> but no, but seriously, does anybody have other questions about 5-MeO-DMT or, you know, what, uh, what it is or what's it, you know? From 5-MeO-DMT or any yeah, of these? Any of them. Okay, my take would be the only time you have a bad trip goes back to more <laughs> like if you broke the rules, as it were, on what you have to do. Because if it's a difficult trip, then there's nothing bad. If it's difficult, if there's fear, literally from a medicine perspective, you know, you're in medicine and you're like, wow, unicorns, mermaids, this is awesome, you know? The, the unicorn is like pooping out rainbows. Versus like, oh my God, it's so dark and, you know, scary, whatever. The fear is just a way to get more of your attention. That's all, that's all it is. You, it's, it's for me, if I have any fear, I go towards it faster and, right, and try to breathe into it. Because it's not, there's no fear, it's just information and it's trying to say, I'm trying to make this more, you know, intense for you to get more of your attention so uh, there's no such thing in my mind as a bad trip. There's difficult trips where you uncover darker subconscious material that you need to process. But the only time people have bad trips is when they either, like I've been there, take SSRIs and then don't disclose that and take ayahuasca and have a complete psychotic break and have serotonin syndrome for five days and, you know, or did the same kind of thing with Toad where they took the medicines or they were drunk before they came in or, you know, lied or were in a really bad place. People can take these medicines lots of times where they don't have, you know, they're not in the right mindset. It's a bad setting, right? A, not a safe container. And they can have really bad traumatic experiences. So, but ultimately it's not about those medicines, right? The medicines in and of themselves are just a technology. They don't cause or deliver bad experiences. It's only people's uh, use of them or misuse of them. In my opinion, they can ultimately deliver a bad experience so and i mean to add to that i think as you mentioned it is a there is an experience amplifier so, so if you experience some theory because of some trauma that's topping up and you try to push it away you're like no 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 no, no i don't want to think about it that fear can multiply yeah it and, just and amplifies it, until it, it amplifies break, yeah. you're like ah that's a that, that was a bad experience until it breaks through. It's just like yeah. in a cell potential, right? The electricity, you know, it's like, no, no, you resist. And it's like, it has to get higher and higher. But at some point, it trips yeah. the switch and you, yeah, yeah. the shit comes out. <laughs> How does Quinn think about, like, on a societal level of when people were exposed to these medicines, possibly people in positions of power, like leaders, if they... <laughs> that is a great question, and that reminds me to talk a little bit about this Bufo conference I went to, where I met a guy who knows the Mexican president, like back when they were 15, or the, you know, they're the same age. He said 20, 20, 20% of the 
current presidential cabinet or administration, whatever, in Mexico has done some kind of psychedelic medicine. So Graham Hancock, you know, uh, he's, he says to make a joke, and it's on the Internet, you know, like a meme that everyone should have to drink ayahuasca 10 times before they serve in public office. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, love that sort of, I love that sort of meme and idea. And I don't, you know, I don't believe any of these things are, like I said, magic bullets. But, uh, yeah, certainly uh, that would be sort of a, <laughs> a great thing. And it's just saying, yeah, if... if the political process is just so hard, man. The people that want that get in there and and go for it, they're nuts. You know, you kind of be got to be nuts to do it. So it's uh, I, I don't just know those, you know, getting those people to uh, to drink ayahuasca. But hey, at the same time, you know, uh, the veteran angle coming into it. Uh, I have friends that lobby in D.C. and you know Tulsi Gabbard, right? She could be the next vice presidential can you know vice presidential candidate on the. Democratic side and her office knows about ayahuasca. So that you know, people they're they're hearing and knowing about it. Uh, I'm definitely involved with people that are trying to take like special forces, and I've done some of this myself, you know, and SEALs and guys like that, people like that, to these medicines to instead of having Chris Kyle American sniper, you have hey badass American over here, over here, but you know, healed the trauma and the addictions and is also, you know, not trying to promote violence as a tool to to solve our problems, and that's really starting to starting to happen. So, does that does that kind of? So, five meo DMT yeah. found in the glands of a toad, or yes, one it... particular species has this, uh, yeah, so medicine in there. So, is it is it like on the skin, or is it just like a gland? Okay, yeah. So. Uh, you know, since I, I, didn't, I don't want to go to the slides and all that crap, yeah. right? But it has these uh, parotid glands on its back, yeah. two big ones, and then it has uh, one on it, like it has it on its arms yeah. and then two little ones on its back as legs. So you uh, milk that, you squeeze it, and people collect it, let's say they put it in an aquarium, right? And it squirts on there and then it dries and then they <laughs> scrape it. And 15% of that uh, material... On average, let's say, is, is 5-MeO-DMT. And then you would vaporize that uh, and inhale. That where you can, that medicine can be taken nasally, vaporized, sublingually, rectally. Uh, yeah. Because this is one episode of Simpsons where Homer Simpson licks a toad. Yes, it? there's all sorts of, like, right? You know, pop culture. Well, okay, so you can, okay, so you can lick a toad. You can or you can't? You can. Not you shouldn't, but you can. Because if you think about it, that's what the dogs are doing in one way when they're biting it, right? They're biting the toad, squeezing that gland, and the stuff is shooting into their mouth all their mucous membranes, so they're starting to get it sublingual, right? And any kind of mucous membrane, your eyes, any place where it would absorb in, and that's how they're getting the medicine in. Now, there's enough medicine for like five people out of one squirt, to have a full experience. So you can see why, even though it's not as effective, right? Licking the toad, hitting it, biting the toad. I'm not recommending anybody do that, but you would get that medicine in your mouth. And you, you so, you know, the, the dogs that they've shown that have bought, that have bitten the Sonoran desert toad, it's like, they don't have the bufotenine poisoning, which is the salivating and the turning purple. They have the five MEO and they just, yeah, they lay there for 20 minutes, <laughs> their eyes closed. And then, you know, come back out of it and whatever, you know. It's like, I don't know, you know, like 
dude, dog is just God spelled backwards, man. <laughs> I, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, happens when a dog. Yeah. But yeah, but there, there was a, a, a mural in Austin. They've changed it. Someone said it uh, on down at 6th Street, like Noasis and 6th, on the side of the building, it said a toad. It actually had read as a frog, but it has a, it was a snore desert toad with a person's licking it, and it said, you know, a frog a day keeps the doctor away. <laughs> so, yeah, I went to this congress in Mexico, World Bufo Alvarez Conference, the first time anyone had ever had a conference about it, 300 people in Mexico City, and uh, we went and had, you know, practitioners and PhDs and MDs and people with personal experience for three days talk about this medicine and show movies and a lot of reintegration. The second half of those three days, they did all a reintegration track. So you could go and do sound healing and meditation and all these other techniques, yoga, you know, to, while you're even in the conference. And then uh, most people stayed on a couple extra days and went out to the pyramids. And so uh, Mexi- Toto is legal in Mexico. So we, yeah, we went out to the pyramids, uh, the pyramid, Teotihuacan, the pyramid of the sun and the moon and, and, uh, Smoked toad, and it was fucking pretty amazing. <laughs> and it was funny because it wasn't, it's, it wasn't, it's not illegal, but down there they don't want you to do any ceremonies where you're not paying them. So, right? So they're not like, you have drugs. You're like, are you shaking? Are you ceremonializing over there? Are you, you know, you guys. So we were having to like watch out because, you know, didn't want to be excessive, you know, doing stuff without throwing them a, some money. But uh, yeah, so. Yeah, well, it's super interesting, right? Because from some of my perspective, you know, uh, source likes to hide things in plain sight where lazy, disinterested people won't look. But it's, ha- it's always in plain sight, right? So... Uh, yeah, but it's super crazy when you think about this toad lives in the ground, okay, in the Sonoran Desert, uh, nine months out of the year, <laughs> except when it comes out when the summer the summer monsoon rains hit. So literally, here's the sound. Here's enough rain hitting, right? And then it comes out. And so you think of the, it's, it's bufa alvarius, that word alvarius means from the womb. It lives in the ground for nine months. You know, then it comes out, and it comes out in the rains, and it eats, and it reproduces, and it does everything. And, yeah, it's, you know, here's a really interesting little tidbit for you guys, UT, and my son's at UT, and my daughter's at A&M, so she wanted me to say some stuff, but I won't say anything. So. <laughs> but uh, the guy who wrote this book on Bufo is a University of Texas professor uh, and back in 72, and, and they, like, analyzed the skins of 60 different Bufo and all these different species, and that's the first place like in real public disclosure where he mentions this he doesn't even call it 5-MeO-DMT because he calls it kind of by a different chemical name of the same stuff right you can call things by different names and uh yeah he points that out in just multiple places says hey bufal various is very special because it contains this you know o-methyl transferase enzyme that allows this stuff to be made i, I mean it's it's mind-blowing it's insane it's crazy it you know makes no sense but uh yeah, people take this medicine, and then I, what, what's really attractive to me about this particular medicine is that you can have a transpersonal experience of whatever energy source, you know, whatever those things, I mean, we're, they're all just 
terms that we're using to try to describe something that's beyond that. Uh, you get a transpersonal experience of that, which means it's not mediated by anybody else. No one's telling you you have to believe this. And, you know, ayahuasca is a little bit more like, hey, here's kind of how we do our stuff. And, you know, here's kind of how our worldview or the songs we sing. This, this is like you experience what that means to you and there's no one else involved. And then you come back, you know, so you have a bigger, you expand your identity to a bigger state or, a, you know, however you want to look at it. And, you know, you, you bring that back yourself and no one else can tell you what that is. And so I think it's people who, you know, I, I know lots of people, I'm not trying to like sell this as this thing, but let's say they have a very uh, reductionist or materialist approach to things. This can help to have, give them a different perspective on it, but it has meaning for them. It's not mediated by any kind of organized religion or anything like that. And I think that's, that's what's really amazing is that you can take this stuff yourself and, you know, figure out the, the bigger mysteries without anybody else's, uh, you know, uh, information, right? You know, just the taking part, you need that support potentially. But anyway, so. What other questions do you guys have? This is the last one. So you no. kind of addressed this already, but I wanted to get it more directly. Since you work specifically with troops, uh, veterans who have yeah. very specific things, you know, traumatic experience to, experiences to work through, uh, but you also kind of recommended more broadly to people, would yeah. you make a really broad statement that everyone, if they approached it properly, would benefit from this? Everyone who... There's, there's definitely contraindications, right? I mean, it's schizophrenia, personality disorder, you know, psychoses. Uh, you, you know, you don't want people with real serious medical issues taking these things. But beyond that, someone who's called to the medicine, which just means that you have a legitimate reason for yourself that you want to go and do this work and do something with it, getting the right, you know, practitioner or all the things you need to have a successful experience, however that's going to go, doing it yourself, whatever, is that you uh, have that right intention. Yeah, people can totally benefit. But I mean, ultimately, I think it'll be one of those things more that not everyone has to do it, but the benefits of people doing it will spread out further. Like, you know, someone asked me at ayahuasca, Oh, uh, what do your dogs think about when you do ayahuasca or your animals, whatever, your pets, you know? And I was like, uh, well, they think that I'm less of an asshole. You know, I'm less of, like, I, I act as less of an asshole towards them. So, you know, it's uh, what, what, what you uh, get, get out of it should really be uh, practical, I guess. So. Yeah, I guess and uh, to add to that, so Michael Gordon has this book on uh, can I can I ask? Can I jump? Who who else has read this the Michael Pollan book so far, or has it like you know to to read? Michael, Michael Pollan. It's uh, he's the foremost food author probably on the planet. Uh, Omnivore's Dilemma, In Defense of Food, Cooked, and a book previously called Botany of Desire. So he's he's a New York Times bestselling author who wrote this book about psychedelics called How to Change Your Mind. And he's been on now Stephen Colbert, NPR, Fresh Air. You know, he's hit the major kind of outlets. And so, yeah, so just so people know about this book. Yeah, he mentions that uh, the researchers think that, so the mind can either be too structured and obsessive or too non 
structure or in between between that spectrum and different people and the psychedelics seem to help everybody who is biased towards too much structure like uh, addictions or compulsive or little obsessions those are like too much structure and even the normal people I guess are too structured but anybody who is on the the other side of the spectrum like schizophrenia bipolar they'll be I guess harmed by having this experience yeah and you kind of have these two sides of where you have this this sort of trauma and healing side then you have the kind of personal growth side and these these two things will work together this is let's say veterans or anyone who's had any kind of trauma and over here you have the microdosing silicon valley burning man four-hour work week paleo fx like human potential stuff i met a guy out of mexico he has a company 50 people it's a company that they use software to make sure that their employees are happy or happier you know make them support their happiness and they have the they have the metrics, you know what I mean, and they have the the software, and they have the the vision and all that stuff to do it. And so, I'm like, you know, these are the kind of that's how, you know, business will sit, spend money on this, right? You know, over here you're like, man, come on, help the veterans. Hey, it'll save you money. You can spend, you know, uh, a couple hundred bucks, you know, a thousand bucks on an ayahuasca voucher instead of giving them all these meds. But over here, you know, this is the part that will kind of drive it for the culture is. People who are, hey, I don't really have trauma. My life's you know, generally fine, whatever, but I want to be more efficient. I want to be more creative. I want to be more this and that. And, you know, and this part of it here, too, will help subsidize this sort of uh, healing healing part over there. So. Do you feel like if people are doing it for that, though, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a totally right. That's a totally great question, and and kind of an irony, right? Is like we're shifting on cannabis, and you know, I tell people, here's a headline from the future: twenty twenty six World Cup in the in the U S. Mexico and Canada, the Weed World Cup. It's definitely going to be legal by then. Uh, FIFA can only spend so much money, get only get so much money from selling beer when, before the fans start to fight with each other. You know, <laughs> right? So they're going to be it's fucking weed's going to be everywhere in in that in that World Cup. So. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying like exactly because they're going to do that, like that, that's good. I mean, I, I've never been to Burning Man, but look at Burning Man. It's like sold out. It's totally corporate. It's like a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, tech people from the Bay Area going out in their super massive stuff. It used to be all like trade economy. And, and anyway, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't inherit, I'm not making any judgments like right on the, the good or bad of that. I'm just more like that's, that's kind of what's going to happen. And yeah. And then you, and, uh, you know, Aubrey Marcus here in town, right on it. And that, that whole kind of Joe Rogan angle. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, ultimately, yeah, is, you know, is it going to be scary if you, if someone walks into Google and they're like, here's your microdose, welcome to Google, here's your microdose kit, you know? <laughs> you expected to track your results, you know? Oh, you know, but, but I mean, we're getting to the edge with all these changes in our social structures and, you know, I was watching some stuff right about, you know, quantum computing and saying we have like really simulations of computing. You know, we have <laughs> proto computers that are doing 30 qubits and they said that at 300 you can uh, map every atom in the universe. And I was like, that's not, you know, that doesn't seem too far away when you can create a simulation, at least at the atomic le atom level, right, of everything in the universe. That's, that's a lot. So, uh, 
Gonna be gonna be interesting times, and I, I just want to argue for hey, if we're gonna get into all these alternative technologies, right, altered states of consciousness, we should master the archaic ones before we try to step into the holodeck and try to say let's go on a couple year journey to, you know, the the stars next door. We need to tap back into these things that people have been using for thousands of years to help people, you know, align their conscious and subconscious or. Get all their woo-woos lined up, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So. Well, I think that sounds, that's probably a good place uh, to uh, come to a close then. Wow. Thank you guys. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today in the Room of Lives. In the second part, Ian and I have a one-on-one -on -one conversation about his experiences of war and his personal trauma, about the effects of the medication that's commonly prescribed to manage trauma and anxiety, and about drug policy in general.